lot of people aren't aware of everything that that's here, you know, whether in terms of marine life or marine archaeology. And I don't have marine documentaries in Lebanon. Like I was growing up in France, it doesn't exist. Thanks to all of these pictures that they took here, you know, for, for fun because they like it and things like that, it actually can have a scientific impact. We recorded a new species, a new species from the Red Sea for the first time in the Mediterranean. Hello. Hello. <laughs> nice to nice to see you. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah. It's always so um so funny, so like odd sometimes even to just jump on a podcast recording without ever having um having met a person but yeah i'm but, excited yeah me too i really like um, it <laughs> thanks where where are you right now are you in beirut or i'm in biblos Chibail. in biblos where where is that it's uh 40 kilometers north of beirut on the okay. coast okay are you from there or uh No, so originally I'm French Lebanese. <laughs> I grew up in France. I grew up in Paris, and my ah, Lebanese, okay. yeah, my my Lebanese side is from Saida, which is more in in the south of Beirut. Okay. Uh, but here it's the city of uh, my fiance, so I'm I'm living here okay. now. Okay, cool, nice. Um, shall we get started, or do you have any other questions, or um, yeah? If everything good is good go. for you, uh, the electricity yeah. might cut, so don't worry, I will come back okay. in a few minutes, but that's how it is here. Okay. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Cool. Um, so since you have listened to my podcast, uh, you will know which question comes first, but just to quickly introduce yourself, you are a science communication officer at EuroOcean and co-founder of Guardians of the Blue, as well as early career ocean professionals, short or you're involved with early career ocean professionals, short ECUP of the UN Ocean Decade, and you are also ambassador of the IOC UNESCO Ocean Best Practices System. Yes. Welcome to the Ocean Embassy. Um, can you tell us first what your ocean story is? How did you come to, to love the ocean, to work for the ocean, to advocate for it? So when I was growing up, so I was growing up in Paris, right? So away from the ocean, but I've And I've always been fascinated, you know, when I was watching marine documentaries on TV, I was like, like, these were like the things giving me the strongest emotions I could ever feel. So I, I was always really fascinated by them. And then when I was a child and every summer I would go to Lebanon to see my family, I would have access to the sea and it was even more amazing. And so just like really great memories with the sea for me. And so when I was growing up, you know, I kept, you know, I was like trying to decide what what should I do with my life, what what studies should I <laughs> should I pursue, because I was feeling okay. This is my passion. This is what drives me, right? But I was feeling like I I couldn't do because in French, you know, when you're you're in high school, you have to choose to specialize yourself between like economics, science, or literature. And I w I wasn't feeling like I could do like biology and physics for like most of the week. So I went mm. into economics. <laughs> I went into economics and then there was still this kind of like side of me being like, I wish I was a marine biologist, but I don't know if I could have enjoyed the, the studies. So I went mm. in that direction and then I got kind of lost, you know, economics bachelor. I was so away from the, from the sea, from the ocean. Mm. I was wondering how am I going to get back to this? So I took a gap year after the bachelor to kind of like 
recenter myself, try to, to find out what I was going to do. And I, I did it in Lebanon, this gap year, which was like one of the best experiences in my life, honestly. I like felt like this was really my place. I felt so good. I felt like, wow, I can like do so many things. I can, you know, lead projects. I can work with other people and things like that. And this is also where I, when I met my fiance, who uh, his name is Sarah, by the way. And uh, <laughs> because I'm not going to say every time my fiance is Samer, he's a, he's a scuba diving instructor. And so, like, after that, okay, when we met, we, we wanted to work together, do things together, but I still had to do my master's. So I went back to France. I got accepted in a development economics master's in Bordeaux, which is already a bit smaller and closer to the ocean than Paris. Closer to the ocean. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't learn, there wasn't anything about the, the ocean or marine sciences or anything in that, but it was more about like project management, NGO projects and stuff like that. So it was interesting. And then uh, when I finished, you know, in the end you have to do an internship and you have to like kind of write a small thesis. So I decided to create the NGO then, uh, Guardians of the Blue, uh, with Samir. So the, the first six months, it I was at the same time writing my thesis and like setting up the basis of the NGO and all the processes and everything. And so that was amazing. So that, that's how it all started. Now it's been almost three years. I think that's one of those um, really important lessons to learn as a young student um, that with almost any studies, you can always kind of find your way to your passion. Um, it always has some form of application. And so many people study something and then go work in something completely different. So, um, and the economics, the NGO work, um, that has so much application oh, for, yeah. for the ocean realm. So um, I'm sure it didn't hurt. <laughs> um, so you, um, you kind of alluded to your work already with Guardians of the Blue. Um, before we jump into detail there from your past and present positions what i could understand was that your main focus and expertise is on science communication and ocean literacy um obviously as the founder of the ocean embassy uh, i love i love that and i'm all about ocean literacy but i actually realized i haven't really um spoken a lot about that topic on here yet um i tried to do it i guess without necessarily naming it as such um could you elaborate what for you ocean literacy is why it's so important and um how your work kind of achieves ocean literacy yeah so i mean like the term ocean literacy it, it encompasses so many things so as you're saying like the fact of having a podcast of talking with scientists and with people trying to make it understandable for people that are outside of this like this is basically you know ocean literacy and uh, for me i mean since i'm not coming from a you know scientist researcher background but i've always had this passion you know on the side to research to learn more about the sea uh, i can i felt like you know i accumulated a little bit of knowledge that then i want to to share with other people you know i spent so much time learning things And it's important to, to also share with other people, and especially in the context of Lebanon. You know, here it's uh, in terms of uh, marine biology and ocean science, the, the, in schools, first of all, the education is so, so limited. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, when you're an adult, you don't have access to almost anything relating to, to the sea, right? So just when you go on the summer, you go to the beach and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, mo- a lot of people are unaware of everything that, that's here, you know, whether in terms of marine life or marine archaeology and, and, and things like that. So just talking a little bit to people, showing them some pictures, because I work with the diving club. They have, you know, underwater cameras. Everyone is like, well, I never thought we had this marine life. I thought our sea was dead. I Like, you know, mm. everyone is very pessimistic about the state of the marine environment here. Just because they don't know, they don't have access to that. You know, we don't have marine documentaries in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Like I was growing up in France, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it's so important for for people to be aware, you know, just a little bit. So just for the for the beauty of it, but also to be aware of their actions and their consequences. And basically, I mean, that's the that's the definition of ocean interest, right? It's mm-hmm. to, to understand the impact that you have on the ocean and the impact that the ocean has on you. So I feel like it's so important for anyone really to, to have this kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the ocean literacy is a big... Um, sometimes I, I even feel like it's an, it's almost a buzzword, but it's, it's yeah. definitely gotten a lot more attention in the last couple of years, specifically with programs such as the UN Ocean Decade. Um, we can can talk about that a bit. Mm. But I really want to talk about the Lebanese Sea and what makes it so so special. You said something just now about marine archaeology. And mm. I have before we, we started writing, I have never heard that term before. So tell us about the Lebanese Sea and um and marine archaeology. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, so I mean maybe maybe it's because it's the Mediterranean and the Mediterranean is like really old in terms of history maybe mm-hmm. that's why marine archaeology is more common here than in other mm-hmm. parts of the world but so in lebanon uh I, I'm, i'm gonna talk about people's right because that's what i know the best but all over lebanon you have really rich uh, marine archaeology and just archaeology in general but here people's uh it was the city of the phoenicians right so the phoenicians it was let's say the the people that kind of uh initiated maritime trade in the Mediterranean. There's also the ones who invented the first alphabet, which then, uh, you know, inspired our alphabet now, the Latin mm. alphabet. And uh, they created it in Biblos, actually. And so, and it's, Biblos is also considered one of the oldest cities in the world because it's been continuously inhabited since 5000 BC. Mm-hmm. So it's a really old city. Mm-hmm. And so since the Phoenicians were the one who kind of, you know, initiated maritime trade on a kind of bigger scale in the Mediterranean, they had harbors, they had encourage and stuff like that. And so that's also how it comes to marine archaeology. And also, you know, through the years with erosions and things like that, you had stuff that used to be on land that now it's it's under the sea. And that's like in Greece, there's so much of that. In Italy, recently, they discovered, you know, stuff also also like that hmm. uh, of the coast so here uh, in in biblos the work that was done in um, marine archaeology it was done by honor frost mainly in the 60s uh, and then it was kind of like to discover uh, where was the phoenician harbor that was mainly kind of like a big quest because we know from uh, egyptian writings that uh, around 1000 
6,000 BC, the Phoenicians were sending cedar wood to the Egyptians, like on a big scale. So they needed like a big harbor to, for these big ships uh, to, to send. And the, the harbor that we have now in Biblos, which is really famous, it's like a really cute small harbor. Uh, it's a medieval harbor. So it wasn't built, you know, it was built around 13th, 12th century, but it, it wasn't the one that the Phoenicians were, were using. So there's been a lot of uh, research going into that. And it's only like a few years ago that uh, an archaeologist who took, you know, the continued the work of Honor Frost, uh, her name is uh, Martine Francis Alouche, uh, they discovered with her team that it's actually a little bit next to the harbor that we have now. And it's like really, really huge. And right now it's under the ground. Okay. So it's covered. So we don't know... Uh, a lot about it they're not going to uncover it but they just know through you know the i don't know how you call it but with their scientific tools that it, it, it's it's under there is they it found under, the, on the ground or under the sea floor no it's under it's like on the coast okay under the but right on the coast right under the coast. under the okay and then off the coast you have like phoenician anchors which are big stones with a hole in the middle that they used to use to anchor the ship uh, you know, mooring, hmm. mooring. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, super interesting. Yeah. And I mean, that has a lot of cultural heritage as well, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And so is that traditionally um, done by diving only? Like it's the only way to really understand marine archaeology and discover, um, yeah, discover these artifacts through diving? So, I mean, a lot of it, yes, because you know you have to you have to see for yourself. But uh, the right now the the Honor Frost Foundation is uh, is working on this, and not only in Lebanon, but also in Cyprus and in other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. And recently, they got uh, an ROV, so a little robot to mm -hmm. to go and explore uh, around Lebanon. So definitely, diving is like one of the most important parts of it. And, you know, in Italy, when they found the what I was saying uh, earlier, it, they were diving, uh, I think. But you definitely can use robots, ROVs, and things mm -hmm. like that to, to assist. Mm -hmm. And how important would you say, um, I feel like you even are sitting in a dive center, is that correct? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. How, how important would you say um, and how accessible is diving in Lebanon? How important so, is it to, to kind of transmit that um, that connection with the ocean um, yeah. I mean, for me, it's the basis of when we started the NGO, because I was saying Samer is a, a diving instructor and the diving club is uh, for his sister, Sahar. She's the owner and she's also a diving instructor. But this is how we could do most of our work because, uh, you know, when I first started the working on the NGO and what can we do and things like that and gathering all the information I could, uh, the scientific publications in Biblos, there's almost none. And there's no, like, like the marine science, uh, scientific publications in Lebanon, there's so few. I read all of them, but, you know, it's like such little information. So mm. what I did was, uh, you know, as I said, they have a GoPro and when, they started 10 years ago. And so I took the hard disk of Sahar and I just, I went through all the pictures. I just went through all the pictures and I just took all the pictures of uh, marine life 
and I identified all of them. And this is how it gave us. You can see here the list of all the mm. of the all the species that we recorded mm -hmm. here. And so I mean, and this was like through. I mean, the, this is a scuba diving club, right? It's for like a leisure time, but. Thanks to all of these pictures that they took for, you know, for, for fun because they like it and things like that, it actually can have a scientific impact. So for me, it's so important. And even now, you know, every time they go out, they film, they, they, they film what they see, they take pictures of what they see. We can know which species are here, uh, what's happening to them. Recently, we saw a stingray that had a hook on her. We saw two actually. Uh, and also recently, but I can't talk too much about it. We recorded a new species, a new species from the Red Sea for the first time in the Mediterranean. Ooh, but I can't talk exciting. about it because it's not published, but yeah. That's cool. So imagine the important, but the thing is also to answer your question, it's not that mm -hmm. accessible mm -hmm. honestly, because, you know, you need the, the equipment and things like that. Like if you want to become a professional, you need uh, you definitely need to invest in equipment and diving equipment. Honestly, in my opinion, it's not it's not accessible. No, it's very expensive. Um, yeah. but I mean that that's basically citizen science, right? Um, you are yeah. you are giving um citizens a camera um or yeah, and then and then analyzing that that picture, which is such an important part um to understand our ocean um but then it's super cool that you take that i mean that's that's just super cool um <laughs> it's really great that you that you did that um and how would you say that it was hard to then turn that into accepted marine science like to publish a paper how did you do that or to publish the so findings like yeah for the for the species you mean yeah for example yeah so You know, usually what I do is every time I get a picture from Sahara Sam and I usually identify them. Uh, you know, there we have there's a publication on like all the fish species in Lebanon, so I have that. And then for the other species, I kind of like look for a while and try to identify. And I, usually mm -hmm. I find it right. There's a list of species in the Mediterranean that are quite accessible. Uh, but then for this species, for example, I couldn't identify. I'm sorry, I can't say. I, I want. Yeah. Say, I will say vague, yeah. but yeah. soon you will be able to read the publication. But anyway, I couldn't identify it. And so, the the world of people who are working for the sea in Lebanon is so small that we honestly everyone knows each other. Uh, there's like maybe five marine biologists, and so uh -huh. there is one that I'm really you know close to is called Ali Badreddin. He works mm -hmm. in the marine protected area in uh, Tyre in the south, and he's great. He's honestly so great. So I sent him the picture, and I was like, can you help me identify this? And uh, it took some time, and you had to ask someone else in the Mediterranean and stuff like that. And then together they agreed on what was it. And then he was like, this has never been recorded before in the Mediterranean, so let's publish a paper. So he's actually with his colleague taking care of the publication. Okay. Because mm. I have no no idea how to do that. Honestly. Okay, <laughs> but so yeah, so we cooperate with him because I mean it, uh, he has the knowledge. Right, I'm not a I'm not a marine scientist. So when we have a doubt, we always you know ask him. And it's mm -hmm. very easy. Yeah. That's really cool. How come? Um, how, why would you say there are so few marine scientists in Lebanon? I mean, it is a, a maritime country. Um, To an extent, is it is it mostly financial and education um, access, 
or yeah i mean i mean for me I've, to be honest since the beginning i started working i always find it so i i never was able to understand how such little knowledge we have and how such little knowledge Mm. is shared with pe- like 75 percent like most people live on the coast like the, and as you say it's a maritime country like the country is so mm. small and most of the country mm. is the coast like how come mm-hmm. you know uh but it's definitely there's so so many factors and if you if you look at lebanon's history for the past uh, mm. 50 60 years it's just so unstable and so many issues and the civil war and the, now the economic crisis and funding and you know uh, i guess uh, public funding the priority was never environment even though like you know the on land uh, environment is is kind of well protected honestly we have reserves cedar reserves and things like that and biospheres but regarding the sea not much and i honestly i'm not so sure exactly why but i think it's a mix of of, of different things and i think we had more marine biologists before but now they kind of all retired and then the new generation, I'm actually, I have a friend uh, who just graduated. She's a new Lebanese marine biologist and they are eight <laughs> in her class. Yeah, <laughs> they're eight in her class. But she told me no one found a job yet because okay, the, yeah. the main employer, uh, I guess it would be the uh, CNRS, which is National Center for Marine Science or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have funding even to do their own work, so they definitely okay. don't have funding to, uh, to 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 employ anyone. Yeah, sadly, very sadly. Okay, yeah. So mostly, mostly that, and I I, I suppose the university research then also doesn't give you that many options to continue. Yeah, like I, I know. One. There's also one in in AUB, the American University of Beirut, and also obviously in mm. other universities, but like mm-hmm. it's. Uh, okay. Yeah, funding mostly. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. So um when when you spoke about the NGO you created, Guardians of the Blue, is the type of work you described now um that is associated with the uh, NGO or do you what else do you do within the NGO? Yeah, uh so basically one of the main things that we work on is the lionfish invasion. Okay. So, what is that? Ah, okay. <laughs> Great. So I have a lot. I have a lot to talk about. So, uh, <laughs> lionfish. Lionfish. It's a. It's a species uh, originally coming from the Red Sea, from the Indian Ocean, uh, mm-hmm. but it arrived in Lebanon in uh, 2012, 2011, in the Mediterranean. Also, it was first recorded in Lebanon through the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. So you know the Suez Canal. Yeah. Uh, built in 1869 and then you know it was made bigger i think in the 50s or something like that and this you know this passage brought uh, so many alien species into the mediterranean and one of them is the lionfish so not all alien species are a problem but some of them are considered invasive because they pose a problem and lionfish is probably one of the most invasive ones it's a it's also, uh, you know, in the in the Bahamas, in the Atlantic, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, uh, they have the same issue. It appeared in the 90s there, so a little bit before. Okay. Uh, 
And for them, it appeared because people had the lionfish in their aquariums and then they just decided that they don't want it anymore. So they put it in the ocean. But oh. then made an invasion. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that was in the 90s. <laughs> and so, uh-huh. and so, there, so they had, yeah. So they have more experience than us, so we can. De- so we learn from from their experience, right? And so mm-hmm. in the Bahamas, for example, <clears throat> lionfish they reduce the small fish biomass by sixty five percent in two years. So wow. can you imagine? Yeah. So wow. the yeah. the issue with lionfish is that they get uh, sexually mature very fast, like mm-hmm. very early, like two months old. They can already have babies. They can. Uh, uh, lay eggs every two three days and they can lay like up to two million eggs per year which is huge okay. like, huge it's like and uh it's like an exponential like fish <laughs> yeah no it is it is and they eat everything they eat everything okay. they don't have left. sometimes they even eat too much that they should eat mm-hmm. and uh they don't have predators or at least not that okay because in their native uh Areas they get eaten by sharks, by big groupers, by eels, and things like that. But here, uh, okay. I guess, I mean, there's I not many fish. sharks. There are sharks, but not many. But eels and groupers, they're still not, I guess, not very used to them. And maybe with you know their venomous spines, it's like maybe it's not appetizing for them. Oh wow, they look crazy. Yeah, they're amazing. They, I mean, they look really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they look um, amazing. They're beautiful. Like they're can, honestly. Can beautiful. humans eat them? Yes, that's the okay. thing. That's that's the main point. Is because okay. So how to how we work on this is, Samir is a lionfish hunter. Okay. So you can get a special certificate uh, as a scuba diver to hunt lionfish. So you're not hunting with a gun, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the spear gun. You he's hunting with a a spear a hand spear so it's like a metal oh, wow. like a trident yeah yeah so old school. <laughs> yeah old school because you know <laughs> i mean legally spear guns are are illegal because mm-hmm. it's kind of uh cheating to just go scuba diving and kill every fish that you see right then mm-hmm. everything would be overfished mm-hmm. so you can only hunt lionfish but obviously who respects the rules here no one uh, except us. <laughs> Obviously, we're not fishing other fishes. We're only fishing lionfish. And, you know, a lot of the times people ask him, why are you only fishing lionfish? And he's like, ma, that's like, it's, uh, it's wow. like an environmental reason. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So we actually... But they're not commercially them. fished. Well, they are. But, you know, uh, fishing in Lebanon, it's artisanal. There's no industrial okay. fishing here. That's yeah. cool. So, okay. yeah. But... Uh, it's cool in a way that we don't have trolling and stuff like that, but you know, yeah. people still use dynamite, for example. So dynamite, what for? Yeah, di- dynamite fishing. They throw dynamite in the sea. It explodes, and all the fish go up the surface. Then they just take them. Oh wow! I never knew that. Oh, I'm yeah. learning so much today. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, but I mean, uh, is it it's illegal? But yeah. Okay. I guess yeah. There's the the upside of um, environmentally. Then the fish habitat are probably quite stable to an extent, <laughs> if you don't allow trawling, etc. But then on the other hand, that is probably an industry 
that could be much bigger in, in Lebanon. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. honestly, uh, I'm not sure. Like the the way fishing is done, even though it's artisanal, I feel like it's also very very damaging because people don't really have any awareness of sustainability and things like that. Mm. So, and also here, one of the favorite seafood dishes it's uh, it's called bizri, and it's mm -hmm. like very tiny tiny fish fried. So mm -hmm. okay, it's delicious, but then you're just killing all the all the baby fish. Then they, mm -hmm. they can never grow bigger to make more more babies, right? Okay. So okay, it's a bit complicated. But anyway, yeah. so lionfish to 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 fish it, you know, it's kind of tricky because sometimes they're quite deep and they're like kind of hiding in the rock. So if you just have a net or you have a just a normal fishing line, it's uh, mm. it's a bit complicated. So that's why scuba diving, yeah, that's okay. why scuba diving is the most I mean, in the Atlantic, also in the Caribbean, what they do is they do this, right? Scuba divers who go, and they call it blind fish calling. So they organize like big uh, rallies of people and everyone goes and is helping blind fish. Okay. Why scuba dive? Okay. Cool. I mean, yeah, it sucks that they invaded, but um, it's good that at <laughs> least they provide a source of um, nutrition now. I'm wondering, maybe you know this, um, I never never thought about this um that of course through the Suez canal there was suddenly an opening um a connection between two seas that that wasn't there before do you know in how far they they thought about invasive species and how um how it is today like are they trying to to control that anyhow yeah i don't think you can you can control it uh, it's open it's open and i think I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't know for sure what happened. I mean, obviously, in 1869, I don't think they were caring much about <laughs> the environment. <laughs> uh, no, that's true. And then when they when they enlarged it, I I I have no idea. I think it was in the 50s or 60s, so I don't know how it went back then. But the thing is, like, it's so important for maritime trade that I think it it didn't matter anyway. Mm. you know maritime trade it's like so yeah I mean, maybe there's some form of observation or um, monitoring that is going on perhaps perhaps not. i think <laughs> there should be but the um, thing is like you can't you can't uh, yeah you can't control no, anything right. you can't control it and it yeah. also even like without the stress canal just you know ships you know you know, navigating all around the world. Some species can get stuck to them and travel yeah. with them anyway and then invade. Yeah. So it's like... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, okay. Um, let's move on to the um, work that you do at EuroOcean. How do you pronounce the yeah. EUROcean? EuroOcean. Okay. I think EuroOcean. Okay, EuroOcean. Um, you just recently started working there, right? Yeah, yeah. Like okay. one month ago. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what what um what happens there and what are you doing there? So I'm working on the anchor project, which is the All Alliance, uh, uh sorry, All Atlantic Alliance. So uh, it's a project from, uh, so it, uh, basically it started I think with the Galway stat statement, which was ten years ago, and there's an event soon celebrating the 10 years of the Galway Statement, which is like an agreement, I think, between the European Union and 
the US and Canada and maybe other countries from the Atlantic. And then last year, they signed the All-Atlantic uh, All Declaration uh, between more countries of the Atlantic. So, uh, you know, more thousand uh, countries of the Atlantic also. So it's basically working to, to work together for the Atlantic on all the aspects of ocean, ocean science, okay. ocean governance and things like that. Okay. And so I and work. You, I work as a like science communicator for this uh, for this project. So yeah, you're 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 communicating um, the science that is done within that project to the broader public. Um, is it broad? Like, is it any any sort of um, science, or do they do something specific? Oh, I mean, it's. I mean, the alliance is uh, like there's so many projects inside it with like marine biotechnology. Uh, okay. You know, uh, there's the All Atlantic Blue Schools Network. There's so many different aspects. They're like it's so big. <laughs> mm. So um, okay. it's very, very big, and it's mostly you know there's so many projects inside this. So it's more of like um, you know sharing the work that is being done by all these different projects in the Atlantic, okay. cooperating okay. between like there's like an aquaculture project that's cooperation between European Union and like Brazil and South Africa and all that. This guy. Mm. Okay, I see. Cool. Um, and what are you doing uh, for the ECOP UN Ocean Decade Early Career Ocean Professional Network? <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm in the uh, training and mentoring class team. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started recently working on this. Also, it's very recent, so we're kind of building up. Uh, the task team and working to, together uh, and I'm yeah I'm mostly mostly that's what I there okay can you tell us more about the the early career ocean professional network of the UN ocean decade why do you think yeah um, of course. yeah go ahead <laughs> I mean I mean that's first I like ever since the ocean decade started I was like so excited because it was also kind of at the same time that I started the NGO and I was like wow, this is such a great opportunity. I'm mm -hmm. so happy that this exists. And I started networking and meeting so many people and it was so exciting. And then the, this network came up, you know, the Early Career Ocean Professionals Network, and I thought this was such a cool idea. And so from the beginning, uh, you know, just starting to, to talk with everyone, to network, um, and then they created the regional nodes. So I'm part of ECOP Asia because Lebanon is in Asia even though Asia is so big. but uh, And so I also did a, a webinar. For example, I participated in a webinar for the ECO program on how to build your NGO, how to mm -hmm. create an NGO and things like that. And make, like talking with all the different ECOPs all around the world, honestly, it's, so, it's such a nice feeling because you feel like mm -hmm. even though someone is, you know, on the other side of the world, they, they kind of share your struggles and share like you have so much in common even though your work is very different so it's, mm -hmm. it's, i love it i'm so mm -hmm. happy yeah i think my most recent um episode i published we talked about also how um how important it actually is for early career professionals to actually meet in person to an extent as well because you need to grow your network um if you want to do 
if you wanted to move um, move some stones and, and do some good things in, in 20, 30 years, the reason a lot of these people are doing it, or a lot of the 40, 50, 60-year-old people um, in power at this point in time, they mostly rely on their yeah, their relationships, their connections they forged like 20 years ago in their 20s when they were young. Um, and it's so important for the career professionals to talk with each other, to meet each other, to forge those connections. Um, and and I think it's really cool that there exists this, um, yeah, early career ocean professionals network within the UN Ocean Decade. Um, I haven't gotten too much in touch with it yet. Um, and with the actual work, or the projects that they do, um, but I should I should read the emails more carefully. <laughs> no, you could. I mean, the newsletters are long, but honestly, they're so interesting. Like, yeah. so many they share all the really relevant opportunities and information and things like that. Like, really, they're so mm -hmm. active. And honestly, a lot of the like workshops or meetings or opportunities, even grants opportunities, mm -hmm. a lot of them I found through through the ECOP program. And through okay. their, their newsletter. Honestly. That's cool. Yeah. 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 And I think it's it's very motivating to um to see what other young people are doing and that we are all kind of driven. I mean all, probably not everyone, but the majority is driven by this this hope to protect the ocean and to understand and learn from the ocean rather than yeah, exploiting it and Yeah. destroying it um yeah what would you say in terms of um the future of lebanese uh, maritime industry or or science um what what would be your your biggest wishes um for lebanon lebanon and the sea <laughs> i mean I, I really hope, like, for example, right now I'm thinking about my friend that I know just graduated, graduated, you know, I just mm -hmm. hope that she can work for Lebanon. And that's also her biggest wish, you know, like, we just hope to stay here. I just hope that I can mm -hmm. stay here. I can continue the work and that we can continue sharing knowledge, sharing awareness, sharing, you know, beautiful images uh, and continuing our work that we already started, uh, you know, soon we're going to we're gonna publish a, a little short documentary about lionfish so and we want to continue to oh, keep cool. doing that too <laughs> yeah to bring to people you know in a accessible way what mm. we're doing what what's what's in the sea what, what's happening and i think like honestly i really hope that like like we can all continue to to stay in Lebanon because the problem here is that all the young people i mean everyone is just leaving the country because it's mm. so hard to stay here you the future is so uncertain you don't know what's going to happen even in mm -hmm. one month but there's so much potential that's what's so frustrating is that there's so much that we don't know like can you imagine we're just scuba diving and we discovered a new species yeah like yeah i mean it's do you not think, a new species new yeah but it's yeah yeah do you think there is um potential with the new um un negotiations for example on the um 30 by 30 biodiversity protection that there might be more protected marine protected areas or that there is an interest in discovering more biodiversity b 
because of the economic potential coming out there, you're laughing already. So, uh, probably <laughs> no. <laughs> because, you know, also since we started working here, one of the goals that we had is to create a marine protected area in Biblos. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to think about what how I'm going to say things, but uh, there, is a, <laughs> there is a strategy for marine protected areas in Lebanon, right? Um, that's been done in 2012. There's already two marine protected areas, as I was saying, the one in Tyre, uh, managed by Ali Badrettin, and one in the north, in, the, in Tripoli. And, but, you know, there's so much uh, more places that are worth protecting, especially Biblos, for example, but also other, other places. The... The issue is the, 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 the political process here. So, I mean, for a while, there wasn't a president. So the hmm. marine protected area process couldn't, couldn't happen. And there wasn't a government. So there wasn't a ministry of the environment to actually sign the papers. Now there's no president again. So, I mean, everything is so slow. And hmm. also the local authorities here, uh, let's say that environment is not uh, definitely not one, de one of their priorities. Uh, but there's actually now it's been created. We're just waiting for the parliament to approve it and then it should be done. Okay. Okay. But uh, recently we, we, we learned that, like one of the first projects that the, the mayor would like to make in the protected area is to, uh, it's, it's for tourism, like it's not it's not really to, to protect the environment. So it's a bit uh, it's frustrating. Okay. That you I have mean, there are mm, there are always some um, aspects of tourism within the marine protected areas, right? Like, of course, at least to course, an extent, that's one of the one of the ways in which you can in which you can finance marine protected areas. Um, of course, exactly. If it it's not in a sustainable way, sustainable. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, okay. I see. Yeah, very political. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the f yeah. Well, everything political here is quite complicated and corrupted and everything. But, you know, we have hopes that we will be part of the management team and then from then we can try mm. to make things better. Hopefully. Okay. So that um, is maybe a good segue into the closing questions of what drives you so mad you just want to give up and um yeah go dive and live a live a nice <laughs> have a nice time um and forget about politics but vice versa in turn what gives you hope to continue this hard work so i mean i was as i was saying like there's so much to, to discover like we're learning new things all the time that discovering new things all the time finding new ways of of doing things like Uh, as I was saying, like we're gonna we're gonna make this uh, this little documentary about lionfish that we made in collaboration with the Lexicon. So we had like a storytelling uh, workshop where we learned to tell stories and film and stuff like that. So you know, this is a new skill for us to to share ocean literacy and things like that. And then we're also starting to make lionfish jewelry, actually, which is a uh, Oh, cool. <laughs> it's uh, it's something being done also in the Caribbean and in Cyprus and Turkey, they started also, uh, which is Out of another way to... Or... Yeah, so the lionfish, if you see it, uh, 
you can use different parts to make jewelry. You can use the tail, which is like little spines, which have like black dots. It's really, really pretty. And you can use the wings, which are like skin, honestly. And uh, we tried recently, we, we dried them. We put them out to dry them and they're just really nice. They're like paper and then the, the tails and the stings are like just really, really beautiful. And uh, and it's something that, as I said, that it's being done also in other parts where they're trying to fight the lionfish invasion with, you know, every kind of aspect that they can. And so it's like a nice way to raise awareness and to protect the environment. So, so yeah, there's so many ways of, of doing the things we love that is just so exciting. And for me, as I was saying, like, this is my passion. Like, I could be standing uh, here and just looking at pictures of fish all day and reading <laughs> I would be happy. Okay, <laughs> I don't need anything else. So, yeah. So that that's probably also going to be the answer to my last question, which is: if you could choose any other ocean profession, what would it be and why? You would probably be a marine biologist. Yeah, I you are to an extent already. <laughs> in, in my in my own little way, maybe, but I guess. Maybe I would. I would also love to be a marine archaeologist. It's so interesting. Mm. I love mm. that. Yeah, that sounds really. It sounds like a really interesting um, profession. Yeah. I'm really curious. I'm going to Google it afterwards. Oh, there's tools, so much to learn. The tools they so use. So much publication. Mm. Check the work of uh, the Other Frost Foundation. They're really great. Okay, okay. I will do that. Um, yeah, cool. Um, do you want to add anything else? Um, any last last stories or um, yeah, words? <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I, I think I've said that I could be talking okay. for hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy. But just uh, you know, I hope that I can continue my work. I hope that other people in Lebanon and the Arab world will continue to work for the ah yeah something also maybe I, I wanted to add is that. Recently, we translated the, the Mediterranean Sea Literacy Guide from MC, the European Marine Science Educators Association, which I'm also a part of. Um, so for ocean literacy in Europe and especially also in the Mediterranean, and we translated it into Arabic. And we found out that Arabic resources regarding marine science and ocean literacy and just the ocean in general are very limited. Uh, and it's crazy because Arabic is like the sixth most spoken language yeah. in the world. You know, yeah. in the all MENA region, all the countries, even though everyone has its own dialect, everyone can understand classical Arabic. Mm -hmm. So when you create resources, it can be shared into so many different countries, but it's so rare. And so mm. this also was something that I got. It's, it's so under like, I can't understand this. So Underestimate. Mm. Yeah, so I, I really want yeah. to keep sharing information in Arabic, not only for Lebanon, but, you know, for the Arab world to empower young Arab yeah. people to, to yeah. continue the work. It reminds me of, a, <clears throat> um, I think, my second podcast guest, um, Melissa Cristina Marquez. She um, is from Puerto Rico and um, in Mexico, partially. And um, she, she was telling me something very similar um, about Spanish and I mean Spanish is what the second most third most yeah, spoken language um and so she she has this um she has a lot of followers on Instagram and Twitter and um it's a also a marine biologist and she just generally posts everything both in English and in Spanish and um 
has done a lot of like has done a podcast books etc in, in spanish and she, she said the same thing there's so much um i mean generally science is almost exclusively done in english um and right. it's it's it, language is such a barrier and and again my my previous podcast guest jeremy he was um we were talking about the recent bbnj negotiations at the un and he said um at some point when you go into these long 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 hours and nights of negotiations the translators they go so if you don't speak english well enough to understand like um Technical judicial yeah. language and technical terms, that's a huge disadvantage. And obviously that's a disadvantage mostly for, not for the global north, <laughs> but for Definitely. everyone else. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah, so many, so many barriers. Um, but yeah, I hope I mean, that, yeah. Can you, science. do you have any, um, any leads or like where should the listeners go and follow you and um, support your work? Is there any way to, to do that? So we have on Instagram, Guardians of the Blue, which mm -hmm. is where we post the main things. We also have on LinkedIn and we have our website, which is mm -hmm. weareguardiansoftheblue.org. Mm -hmm. um, that's mainly, that's mainly when you can follow and then when we're okay. going to launch the jewelry thing, I guess this will be a, a, that's a more direct way to support our work also, hopefully. Okay, cool. Um, hopefully there can be some, some connection through that. Yeah. Um, great. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak with me. And um, yeah, it was a pleasure learning from you and hearing about, uh, about your work. Um, Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Yeah, it was so fun. I'm I'm really happy to have met you. I I was really happy to do this. So now I'm gonna have a great day because I'm in such a happy vibe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's nice to hear. Um, cool. We will yeah, and we'll be in touch. I'm looking forward to um staying updated on your work and hopefully learn a lot more and, and um <laughs> this is the beginning of a beautiful connection. <laughs> oh I'm so happy. <laughs> cool. All Thank right. You. Have a have a beautiful day, and um, I'm excited to read the paper when it comes out. Let me know, please. Um, yes, I want to I wanna see it. Cool. Everyone <laughs> will will hear about it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it. Uh, there will be lots of articles around, like new fish, new species. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Cool. All right. Thank you. Have so a much. have a great day. Thank you. you. Too.